welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask writers from the magazine to read their pieces out loud. I'm Natasha Froze, and here's what we have this week. Hamish Badenoch on life as a political spouse. Martin Vanderwehr on airport chaos. And finally, Aidan Hartley on Africa's love affair with country music. First up, Hamish Badenoch. When I was a teenage Tory activist in the mid-1990s, I hoped one day I'd be part of a leadership election campaign. The energy and the intrigue looked so exciting. Eventually, I did end up right in the thick of it, but as a political spouse. These races have changed a lot since then. Michael Portillo's plan to run against John Major was rumbled when his allies were found to have installed dozens of phone lines in a campaign headquarters. That was how you did it back in the 1990s. Now, it's all done in WhatsApp groups. Kemi and I joked about what we would have made of each other back then. I'm glad we didn't meet. I'm not sure we would have appreciated each other's qualities at that time. We met through the Conservative Party more than a decade later, when she was the parliamentary candidate in a safe Labour seat. It was not an auspicious start. There was a degree of mutual suspicion. She was the upstart insurgent. I was the besuited Tory ex-public schoolboy. But she was desperate for activists and made me her campaign manager. We searched Brixton for Conservative voters and didn't find many, but we did spend a lot of time together. I recall one of my desperate chat-up lines. I told her she possessed the greatest political mind of her generation. After the last couple of weeks, that doesn't seem quite so silly. I grew up in the One Nation tradition of the Tory party and with hindsight was a wet on pretty much everything. I even campaigned for Remain when Kemi backed Brexit. My greatest electoral victory was becoming a councillor in Merton, South London. I stood for Parliament in Northern Ireland as the candidate for Foyle in 2015 and outperformed expectations when I won a whole 132 votes. My political ambitions ended when I was booted off the candidates list by Kemi. She was a vice chair of the party and wanted to avoid a conflict of interests. I'm pleased she did. Being an MP is a gruelling business. After Kemi won her seat in 2017 election, Philip May convened a meeting of the Dennis Club, husbands of female MPs. Being an MP's spouse, he told us, was the best of both worlds. 10% of the pressure, 90% of the fun. There was no Kemi for Leader campaign planned months in advance, no website waiting to be activated, no campaign video. The decision to stand was taken last minute by six people sitting around a kitchen table just over a fortnight ago. After that, the race was exciting, exhilarating, exhausting, terrifying, I took the week off work, but avoided the temptation to change my email auto-reply. I'm currently out of the office as my wife is standing to become Prime Minister. They say you should never meet your political heroes. I am married to mine. I wonder what domestic life will be like when things get back to normal. All this recent drama, I remind her, doesn't mean a lifetime free pass when it comes to divvying up household duties. In a newspaper interview a few years back, 
She said she was able to balance politics and family life because her husband picked up a large proportion of the household chores. It's a useful point of public record to deploy whenever there is a disagreement on whose turn it is to unstack the dishwasher. Team Kemi was like a tech startup, a team assembled in a hurry. The intensity and the pace were incredible. There were no paid staff, just volunteers with a shared passion for renewal. As you'd expect with an insurgent campaign, everyone pitched in. I ended up doing everything from reviewing speeches to tapping up supporters to advising on her wardrobe for debates. She always looks amazing. To, of course, looking after the candidate's welfare. Among the many controversies of the leadership campaign, one still seems to be unresolved. How do you pronounce Kemi's surname? Is it an either an anglicised Badenoch or a more authentic, guttural Scottish Badenoch? My family have always preferred the anglicised version, but as good unionists, we allow each to their own. Not a bad mantra for many things in life. The final verdict from the men in grey suits of the 1922 committee was as brutal as it was clinical. Kemi didn't have enough votes, so that was that. But she was true to herself. Brilliant, beautiful and brave. Now she is out of the race, the country will see less of her over the coming months, while I will see a lot more. That's a trade-off I'll happily take. That was Hamish Badenoch. Next, Martin van der Weer. Sack Heathrow's boss? No, put him on the front line. Airports are on my mind, since I've just stepped off an on-time early morning flight from East Midlands to Bergerac. Yep. Ryanair, efficient as ever. But what a relief not to be battling through Heathrow, where such anarchy has taken hold that the Civil Aviation Authority and Department for Transport have given Chief Executive John Holland Kay an ultimatum to sort it out after he capped passenger numbers at 100,000 a day, forcing innumerable flight cancellations. As the airport that used to be Britain's gateway to the world becomes a global embarrassment, attention turns to the question of whether the man in charge should resign or be fired. I had always assumed Holland Kay was no more than a flak-taking PR, but I see he takes credit for delivering the Terminal 2 refurb on budget in 2014 and has a background in house-building. As a highly paid hands-on boss rather than a mere spokesman, he deserves even more stick for misjudging the pace at which travel demand would recover while blaming everyone else for his domain's mounting chaos. But he also has to please private foreign shareholders led by the Spanish group Ferrovial and a bunch of sovereign wealth funds while facing disruptive Unions with no help from gone-tomorrow ministers. So I'm not demanding Holland Kay's honourable resignation. Let's face it, that just isn't a thing these days. And rather than instantly sacking him, he throws owners should send him out front to spend August marshalling queues of furious travellers. Naming race. What price 
a grand memorial to yourself at Oxford University these days. A Vietnamese company called Sovico, big in aviation, banking and energy, we're told, is paying £155 million to have the college that salutes the physician Thomas Lineker, 1460 to 1524, renamed Tao College in honour of Sovico's chairwoman, Gaien Thai Phuong Tao. She'll be joining a billionaire club that includes Stephen Schwartzman of the Blackstone Investment Group, 150 million for the Schwartzman Centre for the Humanities, the metal trading Rubin Brothers, 80 million for a new postgrad college with their name on it, Ukrainian-born Sir Len Blavatnik, 75 million for the Blavatnik School of Government, and Syrian-born Wafik Said, 75 million for the Said Business School. The obvious risk in this naming race is that reputations become controversial as popular opinions change. Better to follow St Anthony's, the college of which I'm now a proud alum, whose name derives more subtly from its founding donor, the French-born Middle Eastern wheeler-dealer Antonin Besser, 1877-1951. Photos of him recall the black marketeer Signor Ferrari in Casablanca, and I'm sure he'd have done shrewd business across High Table with today's exotic Big Bucks donors. They, in turn, might note that a touch of sanctity rather than vanity in the name of the college makes his benefaction forever holier than theirs. Hot show. The media's heat-stroke hysteria overlooked a sector for which this week's weather was a gift. Anyone staging outdoor entertainment, more usually associated in Britain with hypothermia and box office disaster. My Yorkshire Amdram troupe has been performing Helmsley's whole history in comic verse by me and songs by Kate Fenton to packed picnic audiences. The best gag involved an interruption by a Boris Johnson lookalike trying to reimpose Covid restrictions. Enough, cried the town's Victorian vicar, risen from the grave. No more briefings grim or sinister from this bad boy ex-Prime Minister. Cheers echoed round the garden in the evening warmth. Inflation beating eating. I'm for Rishi Sunak on grounds of character and economic literacy. I'm also very much in favour of a regime of smart and internationally competitive business taxes. Less as a revenue generator, companies contribute only a small slice of the national tax bill, more as a catalyst for investment and productivity. But let's leave that debate aside until we know who's in charge and focus on how Sunak can win final round votes among his party's middle-class faithful. The key, I suggest, lies in his 2020 Eat Out to Help Out slogan. That discount gimmick hit hindsight criticism as a Covid spreader, but made him popular at the time. He'll surely boost his chances of victory now 
if he endorses my campaign for sub-30-pound lunching options to fight the cost-of-living surge. Readers' suggestions so far include two course offerings at Shambles in Teddington, Café Saint-Honoré in Edinburgh, the Folly Inn at Toaster, and Saint-Jacques in St. James's Street. Three-course deals are scarcer, though the Oak Bistro in Cambridge, Blue Sardinia in Guildford, and White Hart at Fifield near Abingdon look promising. A lesson of this search. Beware cover charges and optional service. The £17.25 three-course prefix at Brasserie Zedel off Piccadilly swiftly becomes £20.70. But I'll happily invite Sunak, win or lose, to join me there for what's still a West End bargain, so long as he's happy with a starter of dressed shredded carrots. How much is that doggy? Enough gastronomy. Back to economic indicators. Pets for Homes and other sources report falls of 40% plus in the price of puppies, the lockdown longing for canine company that drove the benchmark cockapoo above £2,300, having given way to cost of living concerns. Normality is returning in terms of frequency of professionally bred litters, I read, while the number of would-be buyers per puppy has almost halved. I'm not sure what any of this says about the trajectory of inflation, but as my kennel correspondent succinctly sums up, the arse has fallen out of our market. That was Martin van der Weer. Next, Aidan Hartley. Life in the poorest continent is so hard you get a lot of knowing laughs with the joke what happens when you play a country and western song backwards? Your wife comes home, your children suddenly respect you, you get sober and your dog wakes from the dead. In Kenya and other parts of Anglophone Africa, country and western music is a cultural obsession for both young and old. We all relate to the problems they sing about, says Jeff Koinangi, host of the wildly popular Smokin' Country radio show on Kenya's Hot 96 FM. Four hungry children and a crop in the field. This is everyday life for us Africans. Every couple of months, Koinangi and star singer Sir Elvis, real name Elvis Otieno, perform country music shows in small provincial towns, pulling in thousand-strong audiences who line dance in Stetsons, cowboy boots, denim and big-buckled belts. If six-shooters were legal, they'd be waving those around too, Koinangi laughs. It sounds surreal, but Kenya is a rural country much like the southern states of America, and our experiences are a carbon copy of what they sing about, Sir Elvis tells me in a Texas drawl. His biggest hit, Loving Man, is the story of a country boy seduced by the city lights who finally goes home to his family, God, and paradise in the prairies, because all he's got is in the farm. It's been like this since Waiting for a Train by Jimmy Rogers hit Africa in the 1920s. In Kenyan villages, they sang in tribute to Chemirocha, a half-man, 
half god whose trousers fell down when he yodeled. In South Africa, the folk singer Rian Malan tells me, the Afrikaners were a struggling underclass, like the characters in the songs. And so those themes of overwhelming odds and praying to the Lord for salvation spoke to them deeply. Like the soundtrack for an African Grapes of Wrath, Milan says Afrikaans folk music meshed with country in maudlin lyrics about train wrecks, orphans left behind, deathbed apologies to mama, and the boredom of family life interspersed with hangovers and Sunday morning coming. Or, as the former Nairobi NPR radio correspondent Gwen Tompkins put it beautifully a few years back, the allure of country music in Africa is its iconic characters, the gamblers and the highwaymen, the hand-wringing mothers and the cocksure sons, the rubies, the lucilles, the jolines, the grievous angels and the folks who just ain't no good. Come the early 1960s, country had put down such deep roots in the continent that Jim Reeves briefly moved to South Africa, recorded an album in Afrikaans and starred in a local movie, Kimberly Jim. As a boy in Kenya, my cattle ranching parents wore cowboy hats and suede jackets. They listened to Adios Amigo, and around the campfire on safari, Dad sang Bob Malin's there's only five bullets in my old six-shooter. I guess white Kenyan farmers simply identified more with American cowboys than the Beatles and Western counterculture. Black Africans here are still fiercely proud of Whitaker, to whom they've given a Kikuyu nickname, Waithaka. Incredible when you think that as a young man, Whitaker served in the colonial forces that fought the Mau Mau before independence, but whether you're white or black, if you're from these parts, you'll weep every time you hear his greatest anthem. My land is Kenya, so warm and wild and free. You'll always stay with me here in my heart. My land is Kenya, right from your highlands to the sea. You'll always stay with me here in my heart, here in my heart. Soppy nostalgia, you might say, but like country music, Life here is full not just of love and brawling in the mud and the blood and the beer, but true tragedy and conflict too. In 1989, a gang of robbers raided the Nairobi home of Whitaker's parents, who were in their 80s. They tortured his mother and they murdered his father. The black country music enthusiasts I speak to are genuinely puzzled when I ask how it is that country could be so popular among Africans, given that it first arrived on the phonographs of colonials and is still performed mainly by white singers for white folk, at least in America. Country has no borders, says Sir Elvis. Koinangi reckons country really took off among black Kenyans when JFK organised a famous airlift of gifted young Kenyans to attend university in the USA from 1959. Why, I ask, didn't they come home to Africa playing the blues or jazz or later Motown? Koinangi explains that men like Barack Obama Sr. didn't go to Chicago or Detroit where they'd have heard jazz and blues. They wound up in Hawaii or the flyover states attending small Christian colleges in provincial towns where the music scene wasn't quite so cool or contemporary. 
Radio is big here, and before the FM days, all Kenyans were raised on the state broadcasters' Saturday morning country programmes. These days, shows play black US country singers Kane Brown and Darius Rucker, alongside Don Williams and John Denver. But Kenny Rogers's The Gambler remains a top request. Wealthier fans at Koinangi's smoking country shows buy their Stetsons and Buckles online from Arizona. Poorer Kenyans find denims or boots in local markets selling mutumba or second-hand clothes imported from the West. Mutumba clothes most of Africa today. Kenya alone imports 185,000 tonnes of it. Across Africa, it's up to 4 million tonnes. Malan says country works in Africa because it's accessible and easy on the ear. The singer takes trouble to enunciate the words, and there's no such thing as a minor chord. Nothing abstruse, nothing Wagnerian, and especially no sign of self-pity. It's also music for God-fearing conservatives, which evidently resonates with Africans who adore famous country singer Cleopatra Matula for her Dolly Parton voice in the land of Eswatini, to the shores of Lake Victoria where Sir Elvis strums his guitar, to the Nigerian hubbub of Port Harcourt, where Ogak J. Oke croons Oh My Jesus. Koinangi says... I'm happy to see young people turning away from all that bongo and jump music. They're sitting down on a hay bale in their Stetsons, having a beer or a whiskey, and listening to some good country music. That was Aidan Hartley. Next, Douglas Murray. It is hard to love the Conservative Party, but one reason it has at least always commanded a certain amount of respect is thanks to its reputation for ruthless efficiency. Personally, I have found that reputation to be only half true. It is true that the party can be ruthless, but only in being ruthlessly inefficient. Look at the mechanism by which it removed the Prime Minister who brought it its largest majority since Margaret Thatcher. True, Boris Johnson had his faults, but did the party not know these in advance? Why was it not able to add the stabilisers so obviously needed to keep a rickety, not to mention rackety, figure in the top job once it had placed him there? It should cause no surprise, for this is, of course, the party that gave us John Major, William Hague, and Ian Duncan Smith, elevating each in turn only to discover each time that a knifing was sadly necessary. It is the party whose most successful leader in recent decades was David Cameron, who entered Parliament in 2001, was swiftly enthroned in the top job, managed to form a minority coalition government, and was out of Parliament again within just 15 years. It is the party that then gave us Theresa May as Prime Minister after a period in which there was a brief Penny Mordant-like fever to make Andrea Leadsom run the country. Now here we are again. The Parliamentary Party has done what it is so good at. The political assassination, 
has occurred. The 1922 committee has once again become a subject of national interest. And the Conservatives have once again presented the country with a lot of people who would be perfectly good ministers of state, but nobody who seems wildly obvious prime ministerial material. At least the assassins of Julius Caesar had a plan of sorts for afterwards. Personally, I have found most of the race to be excruciating. All the vices of the Conservative parliamentary members and grassroots are there on full view. The appeals to things like one-nation conservatism, which mean absolutely nothing to the wider public, even if any of the party faithful understand. Then there is the permanent temptation to put the whole future of the country in the hands of almost any plausibly matron-like figure, the perpetual desire of the Tory male to feel the personal smack of firm government. At the time of writing, we only know who the last three are, but even among the three of them there is a cloud of doubt. Mordaunt has been the subject of sustained attacks from her rivals, but all seem to be deserved. It is true that when she had the Equalities portfolio, a job any real Conservative government would scrap, she oversaw, either deliberately or ignorantly, some deeply unsound policies on trans issues. It is also true that she went off-piste in meeting with a Muslim group which was deemed too radical to engage with not just by each recent Conservative government, but by the last Labour government. Ask Hazel Bleers. Liz Truss exudes an impression of competency, but it does seem like an impression. Like someone who has seen an effective person at work and knows how to pretend to be such a person. That said, I wasn't much more taken with Rishi Sunak in the debates. In the second debate, he tried to trap Truss by asking her which of her past mistakes, being a Liberal Democrat in the 1990s or a Remainer in 2016, she regretted more. For once... Truss was past the ball and kicked it quite expertly back into Rishi's net, describing her journey to conservatism with some real conviction. It was an interesting reply, but much more interesting was the helpless look that came across Sunak's face as he saw his trap go wrong. His eyes started to go down. He began avoiding eye contact and his smile of faux-sincere interest started to take on a rictus quality and then a sweaty one. It was the reaction of a political novice. He is probably the person best suited for the top job, but moments of weakness like that do not fill me with confidence. A Prime Minister must know how to master any such situation. They should be hungry. They should be willing and able to bite the head off any opponent. Sunak looks too much like someone who has floated to the top and rarely had to get his hands dirty with political debate, never mind political warfare. How did the Tories get into this state? Well, 
one answer is that it is the state that the Conservative Party is always in. The ghastly re-emergence of Major in recent days should be a reminder of that. But I cannot help thinking that it has also been held back by the horrible slowness of this country's political discourse in recent years. Kemi Badenoch did terrifically in the debates and in her run for leader. She should get a good job in the next cabinet. But what does it say about the state of political discourse in Britain that the candidates had to get engaged in a debate about trans issues which just five years ago would have been regarded as disqualifying for a pass in GCSE biology? It is the same with other issues that gunked up the debates. Where was the real discussion of economic vision, of what the candidates would do to address inflation, the cost of living and more? While Mordaunt's ignorance on trans and Muslim issues was brought to the fore, it also made the whole leadership race effectively have to go at the pace of the slowest kid in the class. The Conservatives have treated themselves to another brutally inefficient leadership contest. Most of the public has no idea who these people are and nothing much to get excited about. Whoever gets the prize has a couple of years to turn this country around. If they don't, we won't be talking about red walls, but a red wave coming. That was Douglas Murray. I'm Natasha Froze and do join us again next week. <laughs>